Hello and welcome to the third episode of Coding Fix. If you're here after having listened to our first few episodes, welcome back. And if you're brand new, it's nice to have you here. My name is Alex, and I'm a senior software developer. I started doing this series as a way to share some of my experience in the coding world with those who might be interested in it, be them new developers or seasoned ones. This podcast is also the newest in our Fix family of podcasts. If you're a fan of gaming or anime or movies or any of that kind of stuff, I definitely recommend checking out our weekly Gaming Fix show. I'm also one of the hosts there. But this is Coding Fix, and over the course of these first handful of episodes, we've been doing this series which has been taking a look at what it's like to get into coding. The first episode was a very broad look at what coding is, as well as some of the ways you can learn it. And the second was all about the languages that you should consider starting out with. If you're brand new to coding and haven't checked those episodes out yet, I'd recommend giving them a shot. And if you're more seasoned with coding, then I'm looking forward to your feedback after this episode because this one is way more subjective than either of the previous ones. I tried to keep those ones as neutral and objective as possible, but this one is going to be straight out of my own experience. And... We all have different experiences as coders for just a variety of reasons, and I'd love to hear other perspectives. So please, feel free to send me a message anytime, either over at FixPodcasts, F-Y-X Podcasts on Twitter, or sending an email to coding at fix.space. All right, with all of that being said, let's jump into our topic for today. So we're going to be talking all about what it's like to actually work professionally as a software developer. This will be all about our day-to-day lives, the way we spend our days working, some of the tools we use, and some of the real-life considerations we have to keep in mind as professional coders. Though, it should be noted, in this chat, we're going to be kind of skipping and glossing over a very, very major step, and that is the interview, because that one might need its own whole episode, honestly. And... Yes, while it is definitely important to know what to expect from coding interviews, I think it can, at least in some ways, be even more important to understand what you're actually getting into once you get past that interview. I mean, ideally, with whatever place you end up being employed at, you'll only ever have to go through the interview process once. But once you start working there, you'll be there potentially for years. I think it's probably worth knowing if the lifestyle, expectations, and general flow of things is right for you. Because once you're there, that's what you're in for for the long term. So that's today's focus. Now, as I mentioned, everyone who works in software development has different experiences in the workplace as coders. It depends on just a ton of factors, like where we're working, both in the sense of which company we're working with, as well as which country we're working in. Uh, It also depends on the people we work with, the role we're fulfilling, the expectations on our shoulders, and just many, many more factors. We'll get into some of those later. But for now, let's hone in on the last one I mentioned, the expectations on our shoulders. If you are getting into your first development role, it is very likely that you will be starting in what we call a junior level position. So let's start by talking about what that means and what other levels there are. In general, when we are hiring new developers, we usually list our job postings at one of three different levels. These are junior, intermediate, or sometimes called mid-level, and senior. But 
the funny thing is there's no real agreed upon industry-wide definition for what each of these levels actually mean. The label we put on a developer's level mainly just comes down to the broad expectations for who we're bringing on board. And honestly, if I were to try and define what separates each of these, it would purely be experience. It doesn't have anything to do with age, for example. I've worked with brand new developers out of school who are in their 50s and would be considered juniors because they just started. And I've also worked with just extremely experienced and knowledgeable developers in their late 20s and early 30s who would definitely be seniors. It really truly just comes down to experience. A more senior developer has experience with things like how to quickly solve an unexpected bug in a production environment, you know, something that's actually affecting real life users, or uh, making big decisions about which technologies to use if we're adding some new feature, or things of that nature. Developers at the senior level generally need to know how to make the quote-unquote right choice, uh, sometimes really quickly, based on their knowledge as well as their past experience. And for me, at least, a lot of these decisions come from a place of having tried something in the past and having seen it fail. (laughs) Um, We learn from our failures. And having that kind of experience is extremely important, valuable, and one of the delineating factors when talking about these different levels. Uh, Another funny thing, actually, and this is more of an observation on my part, so less of a definition, I've noticed that senior developers tend to try and write simpler code than junior developers, which might seem counterintuitive. By that, I mean junior developers are very focused on making the code work. And sometimes that means making really complicated code, which works, but it can also be hard to read. Senior devs, on the other hand, tend to try to make their code as humanly readable as possible, while also making sure it works, which can be a tough balance to strike. Senior devs also operate knowing that their code will need to be looked at and maintained by other people in the future, possibly by people from other teams or whatever, just not them. So they have the foresight and they write code, which is, if you're casually looking at it, simpler. But of course, senior devs can get reliable working code with potentially really super complicated logic up and running very fast, but they can do it while making it easy to read. And that's super important and comes with experience. And one last thing about senior devs, uh, the devs themselves tend to be a great source of knowledge for those around them. They love sharing the things they've learned with newer developers. Like, frankly speaking, with code, you're always learning. You never stop learning because the technology is always changing. Just because you've finished a course or a university program or you've now started working as a dev, that doesn't mean you stop your educational journey. We're always looking at new things, new technologies, new techniques, and so forth. And as people who generally love to learn, we also love to educate. In my experience, it has been very common to see senior devs taking junior devs under their wings and teaching them the lessons they themselves spent years learning. And it's great. I love it. I I love doing the same thing. And also for our senior devs or leads or architects or whoever who might be listening, please send me a message about your feelings on this. I'd, I'd just love to hear folks' thoughts on it. All right. 
So with all of that being said, the last thing which really differentiates the levels of developers we have is just the amount of responsibility that each one has. Senior devs tend to have the most responsibility. They make the biggest decisions which affect the projects the most. And ultimately, that also affects all the people working on these projects. They also end up being the biggest source of knowledge for people to ask questions to. So their presence can be just a central pillar to a lot of teams. None of that is to make light of intermediate and mid-level devs, though. They also share a lot in common with senior devs. They just have a little bit less experience. Like, maybe they do have uh, some expertise in some things, but just not as much as in others. Mid-level devs are still making decisions, but are generally making less decisions which steer the entire project. Instead, making ones which steer very specific parts of a project. And honestly, junior devs, they're making decisions too. But a junior dev's decisions generally aren't steering the entire ship, if you want to think of it that way. They're more micro in scale. It's things about how they are going to approach the solutioning for the tasks they've been assigned, or if they think they need to learn something new in order to accomplish it. So if you're joining us and you're at the start of your coding journey, like you have been taking some courses or you're looking at university or, you know, any of the things we talked about in the first episode, it is very, very, very likely that you will be starting as a junior developer wherever you end up. There might be exceptions to this, but it's safe to say that you'll be starting as a junior at least. And honestly, that's not a bad thing at all. In companies I've worked with, we do give our junior devs tasks which end up in production code. They don't simply get handed the boring stuff that the rest of us don't want to do. Junior devs actually contribute a lot. And also, we can't get more senior devs if we don't foster the juniors. So, you know, there's never any sense of judgment for where people are at in their coding journey or what their, like, which level their role is. We're all moving forward and onwards together. All right, that's probably enough about that, though. Let's move into what we actually do at work. From here on out, we won't be diving too deep into any nitty-gritty details, but I'll be doing my best to kind of give an overview of what we do without explaining things too closely. These are all concepts and tools and techniques that you should be aware of as a developer. And if you want more detail on any of them, please feel free to let me know and we can dive deeper on them as a topic anytime. And I'll also try to be clear, all of the stuff I'm going to be talking about is what we do around writing code. A large part of our week is, of course, tapping the keyboard and making code pop out, but this is about the part of the job that's more than just that. So I had mentioned that we give tasks to team members. And tasks are a core part of how we approach any project that we're working on. To give an example, let's say we were the team who were asked to build a site like YouTube. If you say to a developer, uh, build a site that plays videos real good, that is way too broad. We generally need a little bit more specificity than that. Instead, we'll break things out into features. Okay, we want to build a site that plays videos real good, right? Well, we'll need a video player. Uh, we'll need a way to search for videos that people have made. We'll need an account system, and we'll need to be able to give people profiles so they can save their videos there. And, oh, we'll need somewhere to store the videos. 
etc. features. And for the sake of argument, let's pick one of the features, the video player. If you now said to your team, build a video player, honestly, it's closer, but it's still a little bit too broad. But we're definitely, we're definitely almost there. We need to break it down just a little bit more, and that's where tasks come in. Maybe one task will be someone working on the volume slider. Another one will be getting full screen mode to work. Another will be the streaming of data from the server to the browser, etc. Okay, now we have taken our feature, which is the video player, broken it up into tasks, and that is much more palatable. And honestly, doing this is a huge part of what we do as developers. We have lots of meetings to look at our roadmap for a project we're building and the features we have planned in the future. In these meetings, we will break down the features down into tasks that we can split amongst our team members. In general, the whole team is usually at these meetings, so we all have an idea of what's going on. And that way, everyone has an opportunity to provide input for ways to approach certain problems or... Maybe someone noticed a step that we're missing in between and they can make their voice heard and so on. And we don't just just have tasks either. (laughs) These meetings are also where we talk about bugs and also where we talk about something called a user story. User stories can be seen as another way to look at a feature. So for example, we could say something like, I as a user want to be able to navigate away from a video. And then have it start back up from the same place when I go back to it. It's very similar to a feature, but we're phrasing it differently. It comes across more like a short story of how the people on the other side of our apps will actually use them. A user story. So these meetings are what we call grooming meetings. We are looking at our list of features and adding details to tasks, user stories, bugs, and other such tickets that will make up these features so that we can start to plan our coming weeks of work. And that process is what we call grooming the tickets. Once they are ready, that gets us into our planning meetings, where we start deciding which of these tickets that we've groomed uh, are going to be the priorities for us to work on next. We have these meetings at regular intervals, and they are part of something that we call a sprint. If you think of it like we're running a marathon, which is building YouTube, and to get there we're planning our features in all these little sprinting sessions. Ultimately, we will get to the end of the marathon, which gives us our site, yay, but we need to plan how to get there as realistically as possible. Sprints themselves are usually split up into two-week periods, but... Depending on the team, it could be one week, one month. It just it depends on who's managing the team and what, what works best. But planning these sprints out is ultimately what our grooming and planning meetings are for. It gives us our pace, and it gives us an idea of how much work we can do in a given period. There are also some other pretty standard get-togethers that we tend to do as a part of our sprints, one of which is a demo day, which I imagine is probably pretty obvious just from the name. It's a way for us to demonstrate new features and code changes to other developers or managers or sometimes even users if they're interested in being part of the process. Another one is what we call a retro or a retrospective, where at the end of a sprint, we'll look back on it and see what worked well for us. Maybe what didn't. Really, we talk about whatever the team wants to talk about. 
Like, for example, maybe there was just some massive bug that someone fixed over the course of the sprint, and we want to talk about it. Uh, that can be part of the retro. It can also be what we call a postmortem, but it can be wherever the team wants to be, really. Now, honestly, there is a lot more to all of this. I've kind of been avoiding the closer details. Again, this is an overview. But when it comes to the meetings like groomings, I'm glossing over things like estimating the effort involved with each ticket, burn down charts, scope of work, as well as the actual tools we use like Jira and Confluence. But that's okay. The concept here is what is most important, and it is all part of something we call agile methodology. There are other methodologies out there, but these days it is very common to work with agile in just modern software development. And it's something you'll probably want to learn about and maybe look up if you're not already familiar with it. Uh, this is where we get terms like sprints and user stories, estimations, story points, scrum, retros, etc. I'll make sure to provide some links in the show notes if you do want to learn more about any and all of the agile concepts we're talking about this episode. But for now, let's continue. Let's move on to some of the other important aspects of our everyday life as a developer that are more on the tech side of things. So when we get to actually writing code, every individual person has their own development environment they like to work in. Some people like Windows, others like Mac, Linux, whatever. It's all good. Pick whatever flavor is right for you. You can also type your code up in whatever editor makes you happiest. VS Code, Atom, Sublime, Vim, Visual Studio 2017, again, whatever, whatever you like. These days, I personally use either VS Code or Visual Studio 2017, but yeah, I encourage people to use whatever they enjoy. But there is one tool that we all need to use when we're writing code as a team. And frankly, even if your team is just yourself, you should also be using this tool. But the reason it ends up being most important when working as a team is this thought. How do we work with our code alongside the code of our teammates? That is where we run into a concept called version control. You can think of version control as kind of being like your undo button for everything you're working on. If you've ever worked on something creative like an essay or a song or a piece of art where you've been happy with it and you save it as my file, but then you make a few changes and you're like, oh, um, I want to keep the old one, but I also want a new version. Let's call this my file one. Oh, and then you make another change, but you want to keep one. Okay, my file two. And then you're making some little changes. My file two final. My final two final for real this time and so on. If you've ever run into that, then you're going to love version control. It solves that problem. And you can have multiple versions of the same file being tracked at the same time by version control. And while there are multiple version control systems out there, most workplaces these days use one called Git, spelled G-I-T. You can think of Git like a tree, with the core of your project's code base being the trunk. If you're making some kind of change to the core code, you're making what we call a branch. It branches off of the main, the main code base. You make your changes on this branch, and then the branch is looked at by your peers, and they'll decide whether or not it should be merged back into the main code base. Or maybe it needs some adjustments along the way. This process is what we call a merge request, or a pull request. Depends on which host you're using. 
doesn't actually matter. Same concept. You have created a different set of code from what the main branch is at, and you are requesting to make changes that will get merged in. This concept is paramount when working with a team, and Git is a tool that you should absolutely learn if it isn't something you don't already know. Again, I'll make sure to include some resources in the show notes because this really is just an overview. So Git also does a really cool thing where it shows us the difference between the main branch and the code we have changed. We call these diffs, and by leveraging these diffs, we can also have what we call code reviews. They can be formal or like formalized meetings, or they can be informal, just meeting up with a peer. And it's pretty much exactly what you would expect from the name. We look at the code and we go over the changes and discuss them. We ask why certain decisions were made. We applaud particularly great ideas and suggest improvements. They are just excellent sessions to have because as individuals, we can get lost in our own little worlds and it can be good to get third parties to look at what we're working on and give us some feedback. Likewise, it's great to look at what other people are working on for just kind of a change of pace as well as just generally seeing what they're up to. On top of all of that, they are also just great learning opportunities and can often lead to what we call lunch and learns where someone on the team will pick some topic to teach about and over a lunch hour, they'll host a lecture to teach that subject and, you know, have room for questions at the end and stuff like that. And boy, back in the old days when we were allowed to actually be in an office, this was usually accompanied by a lunch that we brought in, which was nice. Though when we're all working from home, it's definitely less lovely than that. Not bad, but not quite as fun without the lovely lunches. Anyways, back to some more tech-related tools, and these ones I'm really going to gloss over because they get very complicated very fast, and it is related to the development environments that we all use. So again, we're all free to use whatever editor we want, VS Code, Visual Studio 2017, etc., and we're generally allowed to use whatever operating system we want, so Windows, Mac, Linux, etc., but there gets to be an issue which every developer dreads to hear, which are the words, it works on my machine. <laughs> if you develop something on your Mac and your coworker tries to run it on their Windows machine and it doesn't work, that becomes a really big, 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 big issue. There are a few ways around this. One would be to ensure that everyone uses the exact same operating system, but even that isn't foolproof, actually. <laughs> For example, if someone is a few updates behind, maybe that has broken things in an unexpected way. So a tool we use to get around this is what we call virtualization. We run our code bases on virtual machines. These virtual machines run a very specific version of a very specific operating system. And we are able to define exactly what this virtualization is along with our code that we check into version control, into Git. This ensures that everyone on the team is using the exact same setup, no matter their operating system. And even better, it is often the same setup that we're actually using when we deploy the code, uh, when the code actually lives on a server and is being served to people. So that makes sure that we have the most consistent results possible. There's, 
There's a lot of tools for this, and some have been around for just many, many, many years, but the one that a lot of tech companies have kind of settled on and are using these days is called Docker. Docker is great because it essentially runs mini virtual machines. I mean, technically, it runs one really big one and then splits the mini ones off of that, but when you're using it, all you really notice are the mini ones, and it works exceptionally well. You can also compile your apps onto one of these Docker files and save it as what we call an image. You can then upload that image to the cloud, and it can be used anywhere. And specifically, somewhere that we often use these images is a new part of a lot of people's workflow called Kubernetes. Now, this is the point where I'm well and truly going to gloss over things like crazy because Kubernetes is extremely complicated. So I'm just going to give you the elevator pitch on it. So I mentioned that with Docker, our virtualization tool, we can compile our app down into Docker images, which can be used in the same place that we deploy our code. Now, in a lot of bigger tech companies, Kubernetes is that place where we're going to deploy our code, and it gives us access to just this whole host of nifty tools, especially when it comes to this concept that we call scaling. Scaling means that if we get more visitors to our site, Kubernetes can automatically spin up more images of our app when it needs to, and then take them down once things calm down a bit. And it does a ton more than just that for us, but I would love to dive deeper on it, but Maybe another time. I know that the podcast Coding Blocks is intending to do a series all about Kubernetes, and I would definitely recommend listening to that if you have a chance. Otherwise, if people are interested, I'd be happy to do a series on it too. So, whatever works out. One last tool that links up really well with Git, Docker, and Kubernetes that I'm also going to gloss over like crazy is something we call CI-CD. This is an acronym which stands for Continuous Integration, Continuous Delivery. Now, to say that in more normal English, that means that if we were to make some changes to our code base, do one of our git merge requests, for example, and have it merge back to the main branch, we can set up some logic in an automated system to build a Docker image with that latest code. It does that all on its own. And then we can push it up to some storage system on the cloud. After that, if we want, we can also set up some additional automated logic to have it deploy that Docker image to our Kubernetes cluster. So our latest code shows up on our servers without us having to manually intervene at all. Magic. (laughs) So CI, which is continuous integration, means it is integrated into our Git version control workflow. And then CD, continuous delivery, means it will deliver Docker images and deploy them to wherever they need to go. It's kind of amazing, actually, and it gets to be a huge time saver when we use CICD in our development environments. So it's you're seeing it more and more these days, and it's worth reading about. So that covers a lot of what we as coders practically do with a lot of our time outside of coding, uh, between understanding the different levels of developers, having our meetings for grooming tasks, planning sprints, retros, demos, and all that kind of stuff, as well as some of the tools that we use, such as Git, Docker, Kubernetes, and CICD. Now, truthfully, even with me glossing over a lot of the details and a lot of the actual tools we use, 
there are still tons more methodologies and other tools and other frameworks, etc., that teams are using beyond what I've just described. But again, this is more meant as an overview, a look at some of the more common tools and methods that we're seeing a lot more these days, at least from my experience. Something which is less defined and honestly more true to all development environments I've worked with is the human side of things. Something that I've noticed that people don't often talk about is the fact that when you're a software developer, it's it's actually an incredibly social job. Coders have the stereotype of kind of being isolated, of being nerds and stuck in their corners in the dark, and then they only look at their screens and, you know, don't talk to them. But as you might have noticed with all of the different meetings we have, being able to effectively communicate with your team is just extremely important. And we spend a lot of our times talking with our teammates, trying to convey ideas as well as understanding what they're trying to say. We provide lots of feedback to one another, and it's important that we're able to be clear with our intentions, especially if we're being critical, so that way it comes across as we intend. It can be pretty easy for constructive criticism to come across as rude, or worse, and it can be easier to take criticism of code to heart, as though someone criticizing your code is some kind of criticism of your abilities. And that can be tough, which definitely leads us to something that I think is really important to think about if you're considering a career in software development, and that is the human element. There is a particular set of personal attributes or personality traits that I think you should be comfortable with if you want to get into the development world. For one, you have to be really open and willing to receive constructive criticism. People will actively tear your code apart, and that can be a difficult thing to accept if you're not used to getting constructive criticism. And frankly, sometimes it won't feel constructive. Sometimes it will just feel like people are giving too much attention to minor details, which can feel frustrating. But ultimately, that comes back to just how important it is to be able to properly communicate and clearly kind of convey our intentions with our colleagues. And that goes for our colleagues being able to communicate back to us as well. Another personality trait you should be comfortable with is the idea that you're going to be coding every day for years. It is very easy to start a project. It is much, much more difficult to maintain and finish one. You need tenacity, and you need to be able to recognize your own personal limits. If you feel yourself burning out, that is something you absolutely need to be able to recognize and have the ability to step back and kind of reset yourself. And honestly speaking, burnout is very common among developers for just a multitude of reasons. For one, we routinely overwork ourselves. We develop a really personal connection to our work, and sometimes momentum is just on our side. We can see the fruits of our labors coming just around the corner, and we know that if we just put in a few extra hours on the thing we're working on, we can make it work. And oftentimes, it can feel right to maintain that momentum rather than taking a break, because maybe if we step away from it, even just overnight, then... The next day, we're going to need a few hours to kind of catch ourselves up, to get our minds back to where they were the night before. And it's a tough balance. We need to be able to recognize when we're putting in just too much time and when it would benefit for us to step away. 
Another way we can potentially burn out is bad management. So we, as developers, do have a certain amount of autonomy, but there is still direction coming from above at any given point. If we as a team make a plan, and we're working on that plan, it can be really jarring when that plan is changed by those above us, and then changed again, and changed again again. When that happens, and it does happen, we as developers can feel like we just don't know how reliable this plan is, and it can be pretty exhausting if we put all of our efforts into that first plan, but it basically gets thrown away in favor of you know the third one. It's exhausting, and this problem is especially prevalent in the game industry. If you're so interested, I have a whole article about burnout in the game industry, and I'll link that in the show notes as well. There are a lot of other ways that people run into burnout, but there's one last one that I'd like to talk about, and I think this one in particular is super important. And that is that sometimes we can feel as though we need to keep up with all of the latest tech. We can feel pressured to be studying and learning about all the new programming languages and doing coding challenges and things of that nature in our free time. And that can be really overwhelming for some people. Some folks love doing it which is great, but others would rather keep their work contained to work hours and use their free time to, you know, go hiking or spend time with their families, whatever they like, just getting away from their screens. And honestly, that's fine. No one should ever have to feel pressured into pushing themselves too hard if it's going to have a negative effect on their mental health. So, If you as a junior developer feel like you're being pressured into spending all of your free time on top of your already busy work time in this way, then hey, take it from me. No one will judge you for having hobbies, and no one will judge you for preferring to respect your own free time. Most of us get it, especially those of us who have been doing it for a long time. And with the people I mentor, I actively encourage them to spend time away from the computer because... Honestly, separation from it does a lot more good for your mental health than anything else. But yeah, all that to be saying, burnout is a very real problem. And it's something we need to be keenly aware of, and is definitely something I didn't want to just cast aside when, you know, talking about what it's like to get into development. It is certainly not meant to scare you away, not by any means. It's just, it's something we need to be thinking about. That along with our tenacity and our endurance for being able to code all the time. Okay, there's one last thing I would like to talk about on the human side. And it goes hand in hand with something I actually talked about in our first episode. I mentioned that coding is an extremely inclusive medium, especially as a creator. A computer does not judge you for who you are. It just cares about the code that you write. It will not behave any differently if you are a man, a woman, non-binary, straight, not straight, white, black, Asian, or otherwise. Computers cast zero prejudice over who we are as people, and that remains true. But the human aspect can be different, and we need to be cognizant of this. It is entirely possible for people in the coding world to be marginalized for reasons beyond their control, and it is something that we need to be aware of and actively push against as much as we can. I, along with a lot of other coders I know and work with, make a concerted effort to be as inclusive as we can, 
along with trying to amplify potentially marginalized voices. I wanted to bring this up because, frankly speaking, I am a straight white guy in North America. I am part of the least marginalized group there possibly could be in this industry, and also just kind of in general. But if you are listening to this as someone from a potentially marginalized group, I want to be super clear and say that there are a lot of us in this industry who care about you, and we want you here. Some of the very best developers I've ever worked with have not been straight white men, and most of my closest friends I work with also aren't. They have certainly shared stories with me of being in previous workplaces where they were talked over in meetings or had their opinions dismissed and things like that, and I, along with many of my coworkers, find that just extremely frustrating. So please know it is a possibility to run into that in this space, but it largely comes down to the workplace you find yourself in. Our office in particular is very diverse and very open to talking about these kinds of issues, but others might not be. So please make sure to talk to the people that you're potentially going to be working with and find out about the culture of your potential new workplace. On that note, as a part of this podcast and this series, I'd like to make sure that everyone has a voice and to not just target the show towards the most common denominator. I've organized an upcoming episode with a panel of women developers where we will be talking about some of their experiences and generally collecting some of their expertise from their time in the software development industry in general. I'll still be there, but very much in a supporting capacity. I'll just be a moderator. These will be their stories to tell. And so that brings us to the end of this third episode of Coding Fix. I hope this episode and maybe even this whole starting series of overviewy kind of chats have given you at least a little look into the world that we occupy as professional working software developers. If it has been helpful to you, please always feel free to send your feedback to coding at fix.space. And, you know, that applies if the feedback is bad too. I can take it. <laughs> or message us at fixpodcasts on Twitter. Also, if you did find it helpful, I'd love it if you could share it with others who could also benefit or learn from it. Or maybe even leave us a review on sites like Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. Sharing the show, leaving feedback and reviews and things like that can help other people find the show a lot easier and is definitely extremely appreciated. Also, if there are any other subjects that you would be really interested in hearing more about, again, please feel free to email me at coding at fix.space or sending a message on Twitter at fix podcasts thank you again for listening it is super appreciated and i hope you have a great day